I'm Dr. Gary Linkoff, founder and medical director of City Facial Plastics. Thank you for tuning into Face Facts, a podcast where medical professionals discuss everything related to facial aesthetics, plastic surgery, and hair restoration. How's it going? All right. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. So people are really joining us. Thanks so much for being here, Rich. So, yeah, thanks for having me. This is yeah, of course. great and uh, happy, to, happy to get a chance to catch up with you and talk to you. Um, excited to talk about rhinoplasty. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but first, always just want to check in to see how you're doing. Are you, what are you doing these days? Yeah, so good question. <laughs> Not much surgery, and that's for sure. So I still have my stint at the uh, Brooklyn VA. And uh, I'm actually in talks with them about possibly doing a couple of trachs on a few patients that, you know, have COVID. Actually, by now, most of them have tested negative after first testing positive since they've been intubated for weeks. So there's a chance that I might be getting to do some of those procedures, which, as you know, carry a lot of risk. And uh, we're just evaluating patient by patient to see, um, you know, who actually needs it. So other than that, you know, it's just been uh, a lot of planning for the reopening. And uh, that sort of thing. So how are you? Staying busy. Uh, surprisingly, it's been incredibly busy. Just like looking at, uh, you know, different ways to expand the practice right now. I'm doing nonstop virtual consultations, pretty much 7A to 7P, you know, six days a week, including wow. Saturdays. So it's been, it's been pretty crazy busy. You know, I started this thing called uh, Face Facts, just kind of made it up. Um, I wanted to... Just, um, you know, have like just honest conversations with people who I, you know, like and respect in the community here, but also, you know, globally. And uh, just to highlight relevant topics for facial plastics, for hair restoration, and, you know, some other related, related topics that people just may not always get this kind of candid, um, you know, kind of information. It's hard for them to get it in, in other ways. You know, you, you go to a website, it's just everyone marketing themselves. And they don't have access to, um, you know, the literature that we do. So I think it's in the conferences, right? You know, our patients yeah. are for them. Yeah, so that's, nice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love this uh, style of forum for just giving non-BS answers to stuff. You know, really giving just brutally honest answers to patients because I know that that's what they want to hear. I, you, know, you get caught up so much in just sort of stuff that doesn't really, that's not really reality and people trying to market stuff. And so I'm happy that we're able to just uh, have this No, this is awesome. Yeah. And it's a nice opportunity. I know we're itching to get back into doing some of these procedures, yeah. but it's a, you know, a good uh, kind of... Uh, other options. So some of my followers who may not know you, uh, Rich, I just wanted to introduce you a little bit here. So, you know, Dr. Richard Reichler, he's in New York City and on Long Island, uh, really one of the best plastic surgeons, I think, uh, you know, in the country right now, honestly, uh, just amazed by your results, you know, constantly following you on, on, on this platform, um, but just, you know, kind of talking to you informally about things, just really impressed by your approach to things. Um, how, you know, the quality of work that you do. And I think you have more reviews online than just about anyone else, you know, <laughs> in the five-star category. And that really just says something. I mean, it's, it's, it's not by chance. What you're doing is, is incredible, the way you treat people. I really look up to that. So just want people to understand, you know, uh, kind of more, more about that. And, uh, and you really, you do the, the full breadth of, of plastic surgery, cosmetic, reconstructive, right? So it's, um, you know, pretty incredible training that you've had and you're able to apply all those skills in your practice. So if, if you want to add anything to that. Well, no, thanks, Gary. And the feeling is definitely mutual uh, towards you, my friend. And, uh, you know, one, one thing I always say, um, just in regards to patient reviews and yeah. whatnot, you know, if you're good to patients, they will pay it back to you uh, mm -hmm. 10 times full. You know, it's, it's just being there for people, helping them, uh, even something so simple as touching base with them on Saturday morning, you know, after you operate on them that week, uh, it goes such a long way. And yeah. I think patients really appreciate that and will go the extra mile for you as well. And when I came into the city about two years ago, you were definitely one of the only surgeons who welcomed me with the open arms. And I really appreciate that. So okay. well, it, it definitely didn't come from everyone, but yeah, you were definitely one of the few. So thank you for that. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. So my, my sincere pleasure. So I think you're going to talk some about rhinoplasty because I let's, know a lot of people on here want to hear uh, a lot of stuff. And yeah. and um, so we, we were talking a little bit before and we got, I know I got a lot of people asking me some questions um, right. about it. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think to kick it off, I think patients come in asking sometimes for non-surgical rhinoplasty and sometimes the terminology is confusing to folks like, 
you know, they think it's maybe liquid rhinoplasty or, you know, is that the same thing? Is it, you know, what, what materials are used? And then of course, the number one thing is candidacy. Like I find that people call up asking like, do you do this procedure? And I say, well, yeah, for the right person, you know? And so I think um, determining who's a candidate, I think it's different for different providers. I think people who, like you and I who actually do rhinoplasty surgery, we have maybe a different approach to it compared to some you know, doctors or, or nurses who, who may not ever operate on the nose, kind of start things off. I mean, what's your kind of approach to people asking that question about can they use filler in the nose? Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up a lot of good points right there. I do non-surgical rhinoplasty in my practice, not nearly as frequently as I do surgical rhinoplasty. So anytime a patient comes into my office for a consult for a non-surgical rhinoplasty, the very first thing I ask myself is, are they a good candidate? Because if they're not a good candidate for that, I'm going to offer them a surgical rhinoplasty, which happens probably 99% of the time. And I think that's a, that's a true distinction between what we do versus what happens, unfortunately, sometimes when people go in to see a practitioner who maybe isn't as comfortable doing rhinoplasty or doesn't have that capability of doing a surgical rhinoplasty. If a patient comes in and they want a non-surgical rhinoplasty, guess what? They're getting a non-surgical rhinoplasty pretty much, pretty much no matter what. Yeah. So it all comes down to trying to teach both patients and practitioners who is a good candidate for a, for a non-surgical rhinoplasty. And in my opinion, the only patients who should ever be considered for a non-surgical mm -hmm. rhinoplasty have a low set radix. Mm -hmm. That means their radix, which is this area up here for everyone listening, is pretty low set and they have an underprojected tip. Okay, because the two areas that you're going to inject for non-surgical rhinoplasty are the radix yeah. and the tip to try to disguise a dorsal hump. Now, I don't know about you, but what I far more often see in my mm -hmm. practice are patients coming in either wanting or having already had non-surgical rhinoplasty, and they have a relatively large dorsal hump and a high set radix. Yes. And sometimes even an over-projecting tip. And so if you go into a practitioner that doesn't do rhinoplasty or isn't good at it, they're going to end up doing, doing fillers on the patient. Yeah. And you're going to end up with a massive radix that just blends straight into the forehead and goes right down to the nose. The Roman nose. <laughs> the Roman nose or the avatar nose. Yeah. Uh, from the movie Avatar, where, where it just completely obliterates the frontal nasal junction right. and really looks quite ridiculous. And what's even more concerning to me, Gary, is that... Yeah. I'll see people's Instagrams mostly, a practitioner's Instagrams, where they will intentionally disguise that avatar look in the after photo by either having the patient in a profile view turn their head slightly more in the after shots to try to disguise that obliteration. They'll get clever and they'll only show the nose and then they'll show different, um, different degrees of covering the nose to try to disguise that uh, or the lighting is totally off where or like the lighting the is totally on off. the lower part and yeah exactly and then i've unfortunately had the displeasure to see uh, several people blatantly photoshop uh non-surgical yeah. rhinoplasties where they're showing results that are just simply not possible uh, wow. Not wow. yes yeah. well that so, that's horrible that that's being done i mean i think you brought up an excellent point of really focusing the efforts with the filler on the midline because that's where we kind of have some idea of the of the vascular anatomy where we know it's it's relatively safe. I think the dorsum is safer than the tip. I think tip vasculature is a little bit harder to predict, but I think staying deep and, and central on, on the um, on the dorsum is is relatively safe. And I love the you know the point about the the low radix. It's that's just critical. And so I, I personally I, I like injecting the dorsum. I try to avoid, you know, injecting the tip too much. But I have patients sometimes asking me for sidewall injections for, you know, little depressions or, I mean, what do you do with the scenario of someone who's had surgery before and then they want to have filler, you know, in like kind of a post rhinoplasty. Vasculature has changed, right? So I, I hesitate with those, but will you fill someone who's had rhinoplasty prior surgical? Only very hesitantly and yeah. only a little bit. I think the thing that we have to be most cautious on it, I love what you said, stay deep, stay midline, that's safe. When injecting the tip, if you are injecting the tip and you're trying to get more and more and more projection from the tip or more you know, refinement from the tip, you have to stop at a certain point. If you're injecting and the next spot where you're putting your needle and you keep injecting, keep injecting, and filler is coming out of the skin at that point, you've gone too far. And what's probably going to happen is three days later, they're going to get red. 
they're going to get little pimples coming out of their nose and that's due to vascular compromise it doesn't have to what what i found most interesting is you know it's classically described of sort of the embolic phenomenon of when mm -hmm. when you intravascularly inject someone you get emboli and you get that sort of uh, necrosis or semi ischemic yeah. look but it's not necessarily from the embolism it, it it can simply be from compression yes uh, outside and, and the thing that's most surprising to me, Gary, I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen this, but I've had over the years a number of patients come in the office with clear either embolic or compression ischemia that's been going on for maybe a few days to a few weeks. Yeah. And it's surprising to me what the patients tell me. They mm -hmm. tell me that their practitioners called it an allergic reaction, called it uh, something really other than what it truly was, mm -hmm. and sort of tried to hide it from them, which, I, which I'm very surprised to see. Uh, but I think that I had a nurse injector who did it to herself oh. and had you know an embolic type of event um, along the dorsum, and she her reasoning for injecting herself was that before she injected her patients, she wanted to try it on herself. Which, I mean, on one hand, like that's nice of her to do, but on the other, I'm like you know please, like, I'm happy to do the injection for you and not charge you. Just don't do that to yourself. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of it's kind of rough. So if someone comes in who's had filler clearly in their nose, will you dissolve it before mm -hmm. doing surgery? Great question. I mm -hmm. love that question. Somewhat controversial question. I see a lot of people out there that say, oh, uh, you know, inject vitrace or hyaluronidase in there before you do the surgery, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, I, I, I don't. I actually just mm -hmm. go in and operate on them. I find that because I do open rhinoplasty, it's very, very simple and easy to take the filler out. That, that's one thing I, I disagree with. When, when some people say you have to dissolve it before surgery, mm -hmm. you don't. A anyone who's ever done open rhinoplasty who's good at it will know it is so simple to take that filler out. Right. And um, it's just, you know, and it's, and it, that's what's also shocking to me when mm -hmm. I do these open rhinoplasties that have already had filler, yeah. the places that people are injecting the, the, the filler, when people are injecting into the, straight into the columella, I just say, my God, like I can't believe someone would inject straight into the columella. And the reason they're doing it, and the patients tell me, because I'll ask them after surgery, I'll say, you got a lot of your injections right into the columella right there. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, the person did it to lift my tip up and act as a as a columella strut graft. And I just oh. say, my God, that's so risky, so dangerous. Yeah, and sometimes it's not worth it. If you, last filler question from, from my end, what is your material of choice when you are injecting for the nose? Usually Jupiter. Yeah, usually okay. Jupiter. Okay, okay. I just have good, good, long-lasting, you know, relatively long-lasting results with it. Yeah. But I'm sure there's better stuff out there. What, what do you like? No, my, my preference is I don't even carry Juvederm in the practice. I only have the Restylane line. So, you know, Lyft, Restylane, L, and Silk, and I'm able to pretty much do anything I need on the face with those three. I use Lyft primarily for the nose. My only issue with Juvederm, well, in fellowship, I just found that it was attracting too much water for my taste, mm -hmm. that like the, what I was left with at the end of the injection wasn't exactly what I found like a week later. Just for that reason, I, I guess I've moved away from it. But again, it's what works best in your hands, you know? So I, I literally don't carry it. So like, I, you know, I'm sure if I used it, I'd get better at it, but I've just been using Restylane. Yeah, you know, it's also interesting, Gary, just one more comment yeah. on fillers. I've had patients who um, who clearly have either you know an inverted V or, or some something you know some other serious problem where they yeah. have a visible step off the bony cartilaginous junction. They clearly need a spreader grafts or nasal, major nasal reconstruction. I've had patients tell me that they go to practitioners who offer to inject that area, mm -hmm. and some even claim it will in, it will improve their breathing, which makes oh. zero sense whatsoever. Right. And so there's just a lot of disinformation uh, out there about about the what fillers can accomplish and can't accomplish in the nose, and uh, just you know people have to be careful. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, great points, Rich. Thank you. All right. So moving on to image rendering, like computer animating a face. So I was actually on the phone today with a new company. Um, they're called like Edit, like A-E-D-I-T. I don't know if you've come in contact with them, but it, they, they're trying to be like a real self and they're starting by like educating patients. They have actually a lot of good content, but they're priding themselves on this app that they've created where people can basically morph their own faces, which I'm like, that's not really that new. But also I was telling them over the phone how I don't really agree with that. Because I think it's bad enough sometimes when 
when we're wrong with our, you know, simulation, but when patients can do it themselves and they don't really understand what's maybe surgically possible or feasible, I think that's even more dangerous just for unrealistic expectations. So I guess with that being said, what's your approach in your practice, especially doing as many rhinoplasties as you do? Do you find that that's useful or not really? Yeah, so I take a very different approach uh, than a lot of people do in this, in that I don't do 3D imaging at all in mm -hmm. practice. I'm actually adamantly opposed to it. One of the reasons for that is that I just have a different patient population where I have patients who come from all over the world for revision rhinoplasty. And that's actually one of the most common things that they tell me is they'll tell me that they felt like they got tricked or misled by their previous surgeon into doing the surgery based on 3D imaging. So for, for myself, what I tell patients is, you know, go on someone's website, look at all their before and after pictures. If they have like, you know, five pictures or something, it's just, they just don't do the surgery enough. I always tell my patients, if you look on my website and I told you, oh, I, the, all those surgeries, I didn't even do any of them. I just Photoshopped all the results. They wouldn't be so happy with me or, or want to do surgery with me, I presume. And in my practice, we actually own three Vectra machines. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just don't use them at all. I don't, I don't, I other, some of my partners do. I just find real before and after pictures really show you what is possible with noses. And as examples of this, mm -hmm. I'll have patients actually come in for revisions and show me the 3D image that their uh, surgeon did for them. And one of the classic examples, at yeah. least that, that I know of, is nasal tipty projections, mm -hmm. where the surgeon has clearly in the 3D image shown a nasal tipty projection, where right. someone has a very, for everyone listening, someone has a very elongated nasal tip, the, the surgeon will show bringing mm -hmm. that tip in with the, with the 3D image. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Patient didn't get a tipty projection. Did, the surgeon probably didn't even try a tipty projection. Maybe didn't even know how to do it and just showed them, sold them the surgery based on a 3D image. And it probably couldn't show them a single real before and after picture of a, of a nasal tip D projection. Patient got sold, did the surgery, and unfortunately didn't get the result they were looking for. The way I sort of navigate that, Gary, is that I won't use what I believe is a marketing gimmick to sell surgery in 3D imaging. I'll tell patients as we get to know each other better, closer to the surgery date, if they ever want to go on Facetune or, or probably something like you just said um, and manipulate their own image and send it to me, I'll say, "Yeah, we can do that," or I'll say, "No, I can't do that. Here's why. I just don't want to be the one use, you know, selling surgery." On, yeah, on surgery. yeah, for sure. I generally will do some imaging rendering for for patients. That being said, I don't think I have as much of a you know, as big of a repertoire as you do to kind of show them exactly like, look you're coming in with this skin color, this age, let me show you exactly like the 10 people or 50 people that I've worked on very similar to you. So that's one reason. Another one is that's just kind of how I trained and, and it was never, we never did 3D like the, the more modern kind of Vectra approaches. I actually, we did use a you know, system that also kind of expensive, whatever. I use Photoshop Fix, mm. keep it really simple. It's free, it's great. It's just like an app on the iPad, iPhone and I don't do it with them there. That's the thing, I don't try to oversell surgery same as you. My reasoning for doing it, first of all, every move that I make uh, when I, you know, I'm at home sitting there trying to kind of Photoshop it, I'm thinking what surgical step is going to get me to have it look like that or hopefully look like that. So, so that's kind of in response. I, I agree with you. If you're just making it, trying to make it look good or trying to make it look so that you can sell it to the patient, that's no good. And the second thing is I just find, and I guess just based on, you know, again, my, my training, using it as, as a tool to get on the same page, you know, with the patient. So understanding what it is that they want. I think when someone's coming in for like a facelift, it's kind of like you sort of everyone understands what the end goal is. You know, end goal is you want to lift. You don't want to look like you were, you know, lifted. You don't want the scars visible. You want the neck. It's all pretty straightforward and obvious. I think with the nose, there's a lot of like these little points that some people want to keep a little bit of their hump. Some people, you know, so there's all these different things. And I think too often for people who maybe don't take the approach that you do to really listen to your patients and hear them out and just tell them like, look, trust me, based on all this work, I can make this happen for you and it's gonna be great. The old school kind of um, approach, like the paternalistic approach of like, I know it's best for you. Everyone's gonna look like this type of nose. You know, those weren't good times. And so I guess to move away from that, at least my mentor 
would do kind of some degree of, of imaging. And I've maintained that. And it's really just to say that, is this what you want? Will this make you happy? And I've actually been surprised by like the changes I've sometimes made that are very realistic where people are like, no, I want it smaller. I want it, you know, thinner. And I'm like, I don't think that's possible. So in those cases, I'm glad that I did the imaging, you know, because then I don't think I could make them happy. So I think it's, first of all, knowing what you can do surgically and also trying to kind of make sure that that's what, you know, what they're looking for. I'll, that's how I see it. But again, like it, you know, what you do works great. So yeah, I, I, I love what I love what you said about all that. And I think it's just important when if you're going to do the imaging to be number one, an honest yeah. person like you are, and just really use it as a tool to find out what patients want and not to sell surgery. Yeah, uh, which which it's That's just a critical point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just I just seen it go go wrong so many. And times. a lot of the apps that are being made today, first of all, they're just you know basically just knockoffs of Photoshop because Photoshop really is that you know the original. I mean, any app of Photoshop is a million times better than any of these like knockoffs that they sell for a lot of money, and they're just making it so that it's easier to show these changes that I feel like people want to see, right? So you can toggle the width of the nose really easily. Great, but that doesn't mean that you can get it to as narrow as they allow you in the app to do. So, so those are all kind of issues I have with the more modern, you know, apps that they're just trying to sell. Yeah, exactly. I had a number of years ago, a company approach me to try to sell me these ridiculous, like 3D statue, like <laughs> noses that, that, that there were there were these renderings of these faces mm -hmm. and they would come on these like little plaques that you could uh, display in your office right. and so they approached me to to buy uh, 10, 10 like noses mm -hmm. it was so ridiculous and they said you can display these in your office and show them to patients and and patients will uh, you know you'll be able to say you can have this nose or that nose or this nose and um, and then patients will book surgery with you because of that. I said, okay, that's that just sounds ridiculous to me. But there's a major problem here, guys. These aren't my pa I didn't operate on a single one of these right. patients. Why would I show a patient this? I, they're not my patients. I didn't even operate on them. And uh, and they didn't seem to see a problem with that at all. You know, yeah. There's some weird stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. I think in the field that we're in, there are a lot of folks who are doing it for maybe not always the best reasons, you know, unfortunately. And so it's, yeah, and in patients, it's hard for them to always, you know, find the right person. Uh, from their perspective, it's like, how do you pick a good doctor? They don't always know, you know, sometimes what they see, you know, on TV or, or on Instagram, sometimes those really big accounts, they think, oh, well, he's got, you know, 400,000 followers, he must be the best. And uh, it's easy to to get lost in that. So I, I almost feel bad, you know, for for the patient because how how can they decide? You know, or you ask your friend, and then maybe your friend had a good experience, but doesn't mean you will. So it's it's um, challenging. I think I think I know we have a lot of rhinoplasty talk uh, to go over, yeah. but I think you just brought up a, you just brought such an interesting topic in plastic yeah. surgery on Instagram, which is the person with four hundred thousand followers or the people with four hundred thousand followers. Sure. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that that surgeons are willing to buy followers, buy, buy comments, buy likes. Um, yeah, that doesn't just, happen organically. I just know that just, people understand. Unless you're maybe the head guy on Botched, I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple people out there, but for the most part, it's they clearly bought followers. Yeah. You know, I look at my own Instagram account. I only have like, I don't know, 8,500 followers, but I am yeah. so crazy busy with uh, DMs and inquiries and all sorts of stuff. If I had 400,000 followers or a million followers, I mean, are you you'd kidding to, me? You'd need to clone like, yourself times 10 <laughs> to handle that. You know? So it's, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just interesting. I mean, I, I think, I think you have yeah. to be honest and true, you know, to your patients. And it's a, it's a form of deception, unfortunately, that people go out there and buy all these followers. I know some people that, that, that have, you know, that 200 thousand follower um that they, they told me straight they oh they told me they purchased it and it's surprisingly cheap it's unbelievable it's like um, i think once you, you buy leave. you can buy them for like twenty dollars right so. i mean assuming instagram doesn't catch on i guess and block the account or whatever but also i think like you know human psychology after you reach like a critical number i don't know what that is it's probably different for each person but maybe it's twenty thousand maybe it's fifty thousand but like, if someone gets you know followed by an account that's fifty thousand, or they just come you know across it, 
they're probably more likely to follow it than maybe an account like ours, which is not as impressive number wise, because it's just like, oh, wow, they have so many followers, they must be good, or they must be popular, or whatever it is. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues with that. So open versus books, <laughs> rhinoplasty. So I, know I you mentioned you do mostly yeah. open yeah. as well. So yeah, I, yeah, I, will, I will say not to disrespect anyone out there doing closed. I do pretty much all mine open. I love open rhinoplasty. For me, it gives better exposure to the patient. The nasal anatomy, I can do a lot functionally open as well. ton of cartilage grafts that I don't think you can put in closed. I pretty much do, for even primaries, I do six grafts for every case. I do uh, bilateral spreaders. I do bilateral ALAR contours to help prevent ALAR retraction. I love ALAR contour graphs. It's my, it's my favorite thing I do in everyone now. And I do a columnar strut, and then I'll do a soft tip graft. Usually, usually lower lateral cartilage, crushed up even sometimes, but very soft tip grafts. So I love uh, open for those reasons. I have found, uh, at least in doing all the, you know, all the revisions I do, because probably about half my practice is revisions at this ah, point. Okay. I find that uh, close has a very high high chance of, droop, of tip droop um, mm -hmm. after surgery. So uh, that, that's why I personally love open. And the biggest thing about open rhinoplasty, it really doesn't leave a scar, uh, as you know, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, you, if you do it the right way, it will not leave a scar. So there's no advantage of, uh, of uh, closed rhinoplasty in terms of a scar, at least. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the close is sold as like a scarless procedure. Uh, but if the scar from the open really isn't an issue, then why? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, exactly. I think people use it as a tool to sell surgery, calling it scarless yeah. in terms of the um, closed approach. If you're going to say something like this, I'm going to make fun of you. Uh, that's just my personality. So there's someone on Instagram out uh -huh. there, I won't call him out by name, <laughs> right. but who claims like to be the master of closed rhinoplasty. Uh -huh. And no one that's that well known on Instagram, a couple of us yeah. just make fun of him all the time because he actually put this on his Instagram. It was a pretty bad, it was like a mediocre to bad result. Yeah. And on his Instagram, it literally said, Dr. So-and-so is the only plastic surgeon in the entire world who could achieve a result like this. And it wasn't and, a good uh, result. No, it was like a mediocre to bad result. Yeah. But it, it, that's like his whole account is like saying all these ridiculous comments like that. It's just going to give you a bad name. I don't think that that's no. a way to grow a sustainable practice. I find no. that people who, I mean, there's a way to keep the practice going if you do crazy things like that and things that just aren't good. If you keep throwing money at it. But it, eventually, it's just not a good sustainable solution. I mean, like, you got to keep taking out loans <laughs> to support, you know, bad, bad habits. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. And you want to be, you know, humble and, and understanding and, and yeah. not, you know, and, and I want to know that like, if I send you a patient, for instance, uh -huh. which I love to do, because all every patient I ever send you, by the way, loves you to death. Uh, so you have a great yeah. bedside manner. Everyone thanks. loves you. And you just, just sort of want to be able to trust people. And, and you know, when I, when I send a patient to you, I know they're going to be well cared for. I know they're going to get good quality surgery. And, um, and that's what you look for. You don't want someone saying, I, Dr. Gary Linkoff, am the best surgeon in the entire world, uh, you know, when, when you send someone a patient. So. I think people have a skewed sense of um, competition. You know, I mean, I yes. think especially in a city that like we're in because it's like a venn diagram you know there's some degree of overlap between procedures that people do but then there's almost always something somewhat unique that someone's doing that other people aren't or a combination of skills or whatever it might be or else they probably wouldn't want to start a practice in a very competitive city if you're just like kind of like everyone else or what you know you know i just wish people didn't really always see it as just like oh my god i have to be the best like you can continue to grow your thing and help other people grow theirs. I mean, that's how I've approached it. And I think it's totally, a healthier mentality. Totally agree with you, Gary. I have to address um, one question that I see that uh, one of our one of my residents, uh, one of my chief residents, actually just asked us. Ahmed Nasser just said, yeah. "What's your advice for graduating residents about common pitfalls and the uh, early learning curve with open rhinoplasty?" What would you say to that? That's a good question. I did see that pop up. I'm glad we're addressing it. I think the number one thing in the beginning is kind of getting comfortable opening the nose. You know, I mean, it seems we just we talk about it in passing, like, oh, open rhinoplasty, but getting the nose open safely and efficiently, I think is, is challenging. And I think I was fortunate in my training to have seen it done different ways, doing the Collie-Meller incision first versus doing the marginal incision first. And so I kind of combine those two and I use you know, both of them to my advantage, you know, in different patients, depending on 
what the case might be. If there's a lot of scarring, you know, by where the marginal incision would go, then, you know, I'd go Collie Meller first or vice versa. So it just kind of depends. But I think having seen it done in both ways, I think it's really helpful. I think it's just kind of getting used to opening the nose. I mean, it's very stressful in the beginning when you're like, oh my God, like, you know, if I, if it takes me so long to open it and then I still have to like do the procedure and put all those cartilage grafts in, you know, it, it could be sort of overwhelming. So I think the learning curve, a lot of it comes from, from that just in the beginning. And then of course you have to figure out, you know, first of all, what are you trying to even achieve? Like having the right aesthetic goal in mind or the right functional goal. And then, you know, doing the right steps to, to get there. And the more, you know, we learn about this, the more we read about it, the more lectures we watch, and the more we actually do it, you know, it's like you, you're constantly going back to the drawing board. And, you know, you said like you have like your like six graphs that you do now, but it probably took you many, many cases to get to like, these are the, and, and I'm sure there are times when you need an extra graft or maybe you don't need a graft. And so deciding on how the exact combination of, of steps and moves are going to be in a rhinoplasty can be, you know, very challenging. And I don't know if you ever get to the point of truly, like actually in Dean Toriumi's book, who's considered, you know, one of the leaders in the rhinoplasty world right now, in his like latest book, you know, he talks about how he started off in his career early on thinking that he really would become like this master rhinoplasty surgeon that, you know, he could handle any case and he could just predict everything. And he's like, that's just not true. You can't ever truly master it. I mean, there's just, it's a humbling procedure, probably one of the most challenging in all of, you know, plastic surgery. I would, I mean, I deal with the face, but I mean, what's your kind of take on that? No, I, challenge and... I love one, one thing I love a lot that you just said, but one thing that you just said was, um, which is a lot of patients ask me this, because I'll get patients who've had seven or eight rhinoplasties uh, yeah. when they come in to see me, not infrequently. I mean, like usually a couple times a week, some of the cases wow. I'm doing are seven or eight X rhinoplasty revisions. And then I'll do primaries too, you know, probably half primaries, half mm -hmm. revisions at this point uh, mm -hmm. is what I'm doing. That's something that a lot of, a lot of patients ask me. They say, is my nose going to be hard? Is my nose considered challenging? Or is my nose easy? My nose is probably easy. As many as I do, I tell every patient, I don't consider anyone easy or hard. Because um, once you get in there and you get lazy or you just want to do something fast or you know, you say, oh, God, I got, I have an hour to do this case because I had patients come in or something. That's where you run into trouble. And right. so I treat, you know, you have to treat every single case like it's a hard case. Yeah. Like it's because it's someone's nose, it's someone's life on the line that they've been waiting their entire life for this surgery. So Absolutely. many patients come in and they say, I've been wanting this ever since I was x age and this means everything to me and you just have to you just have to take that responsibility very seriously one of the best things that i do in my practice just going back to um ahmed's question is uh is training residents and fellows it's mm -hmm. it's truly one of the, my biggest joys in, in rhinoplasty practice it's just so interesting when we go in for some of these crazy revision cases that i do you know, and you just, you're opening the nose and it just, you, the residents and the fellows are always telling me, you know, you get complete, it looks like nothing. Like, you, like they don't recognize any anatomy at all. And then by the time that we're finally done all the, all the at least exposure and dissection, you can actually see what's going on a lot of times. Um, and so it's, it's just been great to, you know, have that ex, uh, experience yeah. in teaching residents and fellows. And uh, I do tell my patients, you know, I do have residents and fellows in almost every single one of my cases. I am the one doing the surgery. So that, at the end of the day, uh, no one has to worry about that. I saw it's, someone commenting about eyebrows. Uh, so in case people are wondering about me, I have advanced alopecia areata. So um, that's, you know, that's something I'll be talking about more in the coming probably weeks, but that's why you're not seeing much in the way of eyebrows. So. But no, really good, good points. I mean, I, I think teaching is super important. I really haven't had the opportunity yet in my practice to incorporate that in. I, I am expecting to, you know, do that, you know, once things really kind of are at full speed. Yeah, because I, I love to teach as well, but it's it, great it's, to be able to do that. Well, it's, and so, it's, mm -hmm. it's so fun, Gary. I, I tell my residents that uh, where I trained, which was an amazing place to train, we will literally do more rhinoplasties in a single week now when my residents get to do with me than I did in all six years of plastic surgery. That's amazing. Training. Yeah. So it's, amazing. It's, really, it's really fun for the residents and, and fun to yeah. So. Yeah, so in terms of the learning curve, I mean, I think it's steep, you know, for rhinoplasty oh, yeah. in general. And then once you get into the revision category, uh, it's it's tough. I mean, because you're you don't have the material that you're used to working with. And I guess that gets into that's somewhere on our list, right? Kind of uh, <laughs> sourcing the materials. So, 
I mean, I think a lot of people know that, you know, a lot of our graphs are coming from the nose. So we use, you know, portions of the nose to rebuild the nose. But then when you don't have that cartilage, like you said, seventh time revision, where is your next kind of source? And where's the one after that? <laughs> yeah, so I do, uh, for all primaries, I get septal cartilage. That's the first thing I do in the case. I harvest septal cartilage and I'll carve all the grass from that. Like I said, bi bilateral spreaders, bilateral AR contours, calumelic strut, soft tip mm -hmm. graft for every single patient. Soft tip graft coming from LLC, lower lateral cartilage for every patient. So. In revisions, I don't take any chances. I don't get operative reports from previous surgeons. I find them pretty worthless, to be right. honest with you, to be frank. I find them not accurate or they're blatant lies or, or you know, when you get into nine, nine X revisions on patients, it's, you're not going to really get much out of previous operative notes. So what I do for every patient is I, I use MTF cartilage, irradiated cadaveric rib cartilage for anyone out there, which I talk about a lot on my, on my Instagram. And it's a great product. I've used it, gosh, in hundreds and hundreds of patients at this point um, mm -hmm. over many years, and it works really well. I've never personally ever had a problem with absorption, infection, or warping from it. That's great. Um, it has a steep learning curve, though. So mm -hmm. for any surgeons who are on this board, some people say it warps. It does not warp if you know how to use it right. Okay. Basically, when it comes out of the package, it comes as a completely straight line okay it's totally straight so, so it comes frozen it's totally straight if you put it in the nose immediately okay it's going to warp you just have to know how to use the product so what i do with mtf cartilage is i let it thaw for about an hour it warps at the end i can't really do it with my finger that well to be honest with you but the end pretty much warps you cut off the side you cut off the piece that warps mm -hmm. and you have perfectly straight pieces of cartilage I've gone in for revisions on patients with this, and it's still there three, four years down the road. I've done uh, some crazy cases in patients who've had numerous, numerous, numerous revisions, yeah. and not the current MTF, but older versions of similar, you know, cadaveric rib okay. has been around for like 20 years. Um, I've, I've seen it in patients, and it's totally wow. So do you ever put any screws in to secure, like if it's a complete L strut or never? No, again? no, no. I do all sutures and I'll do some really wild stuff in, in some of these crazy revisions where we'll have um, a complete L strut. I'll do extended ALAR contour graphs all the way up to the columnar strut to reconstruct mm -hmm. the whole nose in patients that have had like you know, horrible things that happen to them. Saddle nose deformities, total nasal collapse, and just really bad problems and that, that it can fix very well. Best advice out there for anyone trying to use MTF, come work with someone who uses it a lot. Anyone, anyone's welcome to come do cases with me, of yeah. course, or, or other people out there. Rod Rourke uses it a lot. Other, other surgeons do as well. And uh, if you're doing a, a mega revision that I often do, which is not just, you know, not like a regular revision or a tertiary or something like that, just like a mega revision that is a really bad situation for the poor patients. I'll order two uh, sheets of MTF for those cases. What's the cost of one uh, sheet? The one I use, it's a medium sheet and yeah. it's really interesting. So you'd figure like a piece of cartilage like that that's been irradiated and processed and stuff would be like $25,000 just for the cartilage. MTF Biologics, nonprofit. So they don't overcharge for it. It's amazing. Mm. So a sheet mm. of MT, a medium sheet of MTF is seven hundred nineteen dollars, and so it's very reasonable for the patient to pay yeah. for. And then if you're getting it done through insurance, you know, if, if you have a deviated septum, breathing problems, mm -hmm. and and you need cartilage, all insurances will pay for it, except United Healthcare. They they don't pay for it, but. Uh, but otherwise, other insurance uh, programs will pay for it. So. Yeah, no, good to know. It's on the topic of, um, like you mentioned, saddle nose deformity or someone who has an incredibly kind of scooped nose or some other kind of traumatic event there. For dorsal augmentation, I know this is a, kind of a hot topic at you know conferences and the like. So what's your kind of preferred method? Let's say you're using MTF, but... I mean, what do you what do you do with it for for the dorsum? Here's what I would tell you. Um, try, at least in my experience, um, I try to avoid dorsal augmentation if I can. It's high high risk of complications. Dorsal mm -hmm. augmentation is. What are the risks of dorsal augmentation? Malposition is the biggest mm -hmm. risk. You have to be very careful. Now, what I've done in some patients is, especially if they have thick skin, you can really do well uh, with with dorsal augmentation. Mm -hmm. Which are most patients who want like let's just get saddle nose out of the way because that that's yeah. a whole other topic. Right. But let's just say someone wants a little dorsal augmentation um, and they have thick dorsal skin. You can actually tunnel a very very precision tunnel 
up up the dorsum because you're not rasping it down. You're not having to do it. Right. You put spreader grafts. You're not rasping it and creating that wide undermining like you normally would. So if you create a very very focal tunnel, you can actually put a long piece of MTF cartilage up there. And um, as long as it's thick skin, it works incredibly well. I've, I've just had such great results doing that. Now, what do you do in the thin skin patient? Usually thin skin patients aren't really getting dorsal augmentation, to be honest with you. But if they were, you just have to be very cautious. I've done dice cartilage wrapped in fat and temporal fascia before. Um, I like it, but it tends to resorb a little too a little too much for my taste. So I try to avoid it if possible. But if you have to, you have to. But for like um, Asian or African-American nose where they're that's, looking for that projection. That's what I'm talking about. And usually in Asian and African-American noses, um, the dorsal skin is thicker than right, the Asian right. nose. So, so you slide in like a solid MTF piece I've in a tight some, pocket. Yeah, I've done some amazing thicker skinned uh, yeah. Asian, African-American dorsal augmentation. It works really well for those. The patient you'd want to avoid at all costs is a thin skin um, yeah. Caucasian patient. Uh, Makes for the sense. Dorsal. Someone asked here, does MTF have a risk of warping after surgery? I think you maybe she kind of didn't catch it early on. Yeah, so, want to so, reiterate. yeah. So MTF, as we were talking, it comes as a perfectly straight frozen piece. You have to let it thaw for an hour before surgery. It will warp some towards the end or other other ways, and you just cut it so it doesn't warp. It's a really, really good way to use MTF. It will not warp as long as you know how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, it's your first time using it it's it's gonna it's gonna warp it's gonna be a disaster that's what i've i've talked to some other surgeons who said oh yeah you know i used mtf i didn't really like it that much and i'll say oh you know did you let it thaw before you put it in they said no there's no reason to it's perfectly straight and i said oh god no wonder right. why you have problems with it yeah i mean even so. autologous rib which you know i don't yeah. do a ton of i'm assuming you know if you were using mtf you probably also aren't doing a lot of autologous rib Exactly. Yeah, so, but but autologous rib also. I mean, you you have to give it time to to fully kind of warp, yeah, you know, before you start carving it and doing different things to it. So yeah, so I mean, I think it's it's somewhat similar in some ways, but of course, if it's coming frozen, you know, as a piece that's straight, like then you have to give it, I think, even more time than autologous. So. That makes sense. In terms of tip swelling after surgery, people expect their results right when the cast gets removed. But as we all know, that's not yeah. always, you know, when you see the final result. And we always tell people it could take up to a year, but, you know, folks get, they, people get discouraged, they get frustrated. So just want to know kind of your protocol for managing that. It's all about communication for me. I tell patients a million times before surgery, after surgery, way after surgery, that it's just going to take time for the tip to yeah. come down. It is truly a year-long process. Yeah. And, um, and you just have to be open and honest with patients about that. Uh, so what I usually tell patients is uh, I'll take the splint off a week after surgery. A week after surgery, you can go back to the gym. You can go back to work. You can do whatever you want. If you have a little residual bruising under your eyes, you can cover up with a little makeup. But otherwise, you're free to go about your normal life. It's not going to be your perfect final result by then, but it's good enough to get you back out in public and feeling confident again. It does take a full year to get to that uh, way. And patients are great. I mean, when, when, if you tell them something enough times and you're very honest and open about it and they have a very good understanding about what to expect going into surgery, um, I think, I think they're, they're very understanding about that. And, Do you offer just, them steroid injections? Yes, or, no. steroid injections work great for the dorsum and the super tip. I never inject the tip itself, but dorsum yes. super tip works amazingly well. I wanted to, uh, so someone asked a great question there about uh, COVID? yeah how will COVID affect the way you do rhinoplasties i think it's it's something that's on all of our minds of course right. patient safety and staff safety is, is our number one priority at all times so when we're when we're back up and running uh, which is another topic we're going to address because a lot of people have been asking about that but we'll get to that uh, next but when we're back up and running we're going to be doing uh, testing on every patient that comes into the operating room in accordance with our sort of uh, state guidelines uh, so we're definitely going to be doing testing within 20 24 hours of surgery uh, to make sure that, um, that that patients aren't carrying it into the operating room. Uh, we're testing our staff as well. It's really going to be the main focus on safety uh, when, when we return to the OR. That's like the hot topic of conversation right now. And I don't mind it at all, but usually about like 
20 to 30 times a day I'm asked when we're going to be reopening. And so it's great. We have friends all around the country who are starting to operate again this week, uh, which I'm very happy um, to hear. Things are going well in other places. New York is, is getting much better. I can tell you from a lot of friends in hospitals, ICU admissions are down intubations are down, vented patients are down, everything's looking a lot better. So when we're going to open, you know, totally is dependent on how everyone's doing, um, how, how, our local, how our local hospitals are doing in terms of their um, capacities right now. And that'll definitely come from a mandate from, from Governor Cuomo. Most of us think it's going to be around, uh, around mid-May. Um, I think the earliest he said uh, it was going to be May 15th. So yeah, hopefully, I think I think it's looking like it's going to be around then. You know, other other counties in New York um, ha can start operating now. Actually, electively, it's just New York City, Nassau County, the, the harder hit counties can't. But we, but we're confident that we're going to come back. We're going to come back strong and safe. Uh, most importantly, I think it's going to be really great for everyone. So, will you be doing anything um, extra in terms of PPE for yourself and you know for the people who are scrubbing in? Because you know, as we know, the nose can carry you know a lot of this contagion. And even with a negative test, you know, there are false negatives out yeah. there. And yeah. So, I mean, I like, just... Will you do anything extra? Because I've heard of some people on some boards saying that they want to wear full PAPR, you know, full on suits and everything. I mean, I think that's a bit extreme, but I, do I think that's I think that's a bit I think that's a bit extreme. I think I think, yeah. you know, using appropriate PPE is, is going to be critical. Leaving giant suits and whatnot uh, yeah. for hospital-treated ICUs is more important at this point. I think everyone's has the right focus in mind on patient safety, which is which. What is about when you're care. seeing patients in the office? I mean, I've been thinking about this, you know, just, you know, as early as just a few hours ago, like, you know, what's the best way to protect patients, protect ourselves? without, you know, making it kind of uncomfortable for people. I mean, especially in the kind of aesthetic world that we live in. I mean, patients wearing masks is a little bit strange if they're coming in for their face to be assessed. For yeah. us, should we wear masks or is that going to make be, patients uncomfortable? I, no, I think, I think masks are great. Uh, I think everyone should wear them, quite honestly, for now, at least. And I'll tell you my strategy and the way I'm running my practice is uh, I'm doing all virtuals right now, six days a week, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. pretty much nonstop. It's crazy how busy it is. When we do get back in the operating room, I'm pretty much only going to be operating. I'm not going to be seeing patients um, mm. as far as new consults in the office. That's why I, I tell everyone, definitely take advantage of this time right now to do virtuals because when we do get back to work it's going to be crazy busy for patients getting surgery because we've we have to honor the those those patients who who uh who we've promised surgery to and had to delay it due to this so i'm pretty much going to be operating non-stop and um and not doing too many new consults at that point but we'll probably still keep i mean i've, I've been doing virtuals for years and years and years virtual consults and love doing it we, we get a lot of international patients doing it so yeah uh, we awesome. definitely will continue on with that as well so someone had asked rich just because as we're kind of getting to the last because five minutes here yeah. um, if someone's wanting a thinner nose but not the downtime of full rhinoplasty would you recommend Ailer reduction, are um, most good. happy with those results? Good question. I'm going to answer it very quickly. No. Uh, do not substitute anything, in my opinion, for a full rhinoplasty. I see so many patients out there who who uh, tell me they just want you know they just wanted a quick surgery with little downtime, and their surgeon was doing it under local anesthesia. Guess what? Probably 99% of those cases are going to end up needing a revision. So I would say a definite no to that one. But patients ask about it a lot, and some surgeons will do anything to take your money. Uh, so there will be a lot of people out there that will gladly do it for you and take your money. Uh, money's probably better spent in charity at that point. Mm -hmm. And then what's this say? Do, um, do you normally use nasal grafts in septoplasty? How does that affect the overall look and function of the nose? And my personal philosophy is I won't ever just do a septoplasty. For me, I know it's not going to work that well, honestly. It's not going to help the breathing alone uh, doing a septoplasty. I always do spreader grafts in that situation where someone has impaired breathing and deviated septum. In my humble opinion, you have to use spreader grafts too or the breathing doesn't get better. Yeah, I've found that especially with like caudal septal um, deflection, then open septoplasty is really the way to go. And you oftentimes need to really rebuild the front of the septum, you know, the caudal portion, 
bottom front portion of it, you need to give it some structure. You know, in a lot of these patients, it's very, even the ones that aren't exactly like deviated caudally, but they just have almost just like a flattened nose, you know, there's just no support there. For septoplasty, I really look for unilateral obstruction. It's almost impossible for them to have true, you know, like bilateral obstruction from a deviated septum. It's, you know, if it's severe enough, it's usually one side. And then for my bilateral obstruction patients, it's oftentimes that their tip is just kind of flattened against, against their face. So I'm doing open septoplasty, a lot of times taking a PDS kind of scaffolding kind of template and attaching cartilage to that and really building up the front of the nose. And then once it's nice and stable and away from their face, find that their breathing is so much better. So at the VA, for example, I'm doing a lot of those cases and, and they, you know, they do great and they don't really care how they look. I mean, I think they look better, but their focus is just like, you know, how do I breathe better? Someone got to a hot topic uh, with this question they just asked, which is collimelar struct graft versus septal extension. Graft. Oh, yeah, we, we uh, had that on our list. Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't get through everything. Uh, so tell me your thoughts on, um, on uh, that versus tongue and groove versus... Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't train with much like just straight collimelar strut. And I guess there's concern from like, you know, some like Toriumi or whatever, some surgeons that over time there could be some droop because you're not attaching it to like the main septum. So I tend to do tongue groove if there's enough projection of the septum. If the septum is sort of recessed too much, then I use an extension graft to get it to the point where I can do essentially a tongue and groove, even though it's a septal extension graft. So that's the way I do it. I think one of the downsides is that you, you kind of, you create a stiffer tip. And so that's, you know, a concern for some patients. Like if they're kissing, they feel like, yeah, my tip is so hard. So I think a columnar strut is, is a more maybe natural feel, but potentially over time, there could be a little bit of, of droop. I don't know. That, that's my take on it. Yeah. I love columnar shark grafts. That's how I do it. But your points are well taken, of course. I have such a bad perspective on tongue and groove. No, like, uh, no, no offense to anyone out there. But um, just because I do a lot of revision and probably just a manifestation, probably just a, you know, capture bias that, that I do so many revisions. Um, and I see a lot of tongue and grooves that have over-rotated or exposed uh, nostrils through ALR retraction due to some of the stuff or asymmetries or, as you said, too hard. Uh, but I think there's, I think the whole point to that is there's plus and minuses to every technique and uh, you never want to try to dictate what your surgeon does. You know, let your surgeon sort of uh, do the technique that they're most comfortable with. If you get good results, it, that those speak for themselves. Time is almost out. So yes. Dr. Richard Rush, how do people get in touch with you if they want to book an appointment and, uh, uh, I would just say Instagram. Yeah, that's okay. That's, uh, yeah, just yeah, I'm I'm very open to, to messaging and um, and uh, I, I tend to get in touch with patients pretty quickly. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's really fun, and I think people learned a lot about it. Um, I'll capture the video and, and store it, and then we'll reshare it through like IGTV and other ways, so Love it. people can you know, it. hear it again. So thanks again. Gary, uh, I look forward you. to seeing you soon. I can't wait. That was so much fun. Thanks right, so thank much you, for having friend. me, Gary. Okay, sounds good. I'll see you, Rich. All right, bye. bye.